Father, we lift up the Pertzers today and desire that you would surround them with your care and your your love as they bring a, a new baby into the world. And we just pray for that baby that it would be not only delivered safe, but that you would, as you have already built a family that uh, will be conducive for that child to come to know you. And we pray that that work will continue and be solidified as I'm sure they have prayed. And we just commit their ministry to them, that you would minimize the distractions and those things that a new baby will bring for sure that may distract from uh, the things that you want to accomplish. We know both are in your hands. We pray for Connie this week as she also faces surgery, that you would also, as she prayed, enable her to be a godly patient, a light, and that those would see that there's something different about this person. Commit our time to you, desiring that your spirit speak to us through your word. We want to confess any sin that may hinder us from uh, not only understanding, but particularly and especially applying today. We desire We know the privilege that you've given to us, the privileges, and we desire to live a life in accordance with what you've granted to us. So we pray these things, committing our time in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's get into the book of Romans. You've got a little title there, Performance. Now this is relating to performing in accordance to the privilege. That's the reason I use a P there, just uh, kind of coordinate the alliteration there. And this is a major theme, not just in the New Testament, but it was something that God expected the nation of Israel to do. And in fact, the focus of this passage is Jewish people, and 21 through 24 deals with that major theme of what God expected of them, not only historically, but particularly in the first century. And we see lots of hints in the first century that uh, they had failed, and Paul is bringing that to the forefront, using that to convict them of their need for a Savior or a Messiah. There was one in the first century that claimed to be that Messiah, and that's going to be what Paul is going to eventually lead to, is how do you come into that saving relationship? So our focus is 21 through 24 of chapter 2 this morning, focused and initially written to the church at Rome, many small churches that existed, some of them probably the size of our class here, maybe even smaller, house churches, churches that met in homes. There were no buildings that people met until much later, 100 years or so later. So people met wherever they could meet, particularly people's homes, and you see hints of that at the conclusion of the Book of Romans. Just again, to set the context, he lays out the predicament of the Jews in chapter 2, verse 1. He identifies it broadly in terms of self-righteousness, and that was certainly a characteristic of first century Jewish people. They thought they had a right relationship with God, but it was a self righteousness rather than a biblical and real righteousness. So he has to kind of lay out for them the principles that God will utilize in ultimate judgment. 
And I think he kind of transitions somewhere in there from temporal judgment, which they were in danger of. And they, in fact, did experience as a nation in 70 A.D., but he eventually, I think, in particularly verse 16, looks way ahead at ultimate judgment. And there are certain principles that are laid out in the Old Testament. Jews would be familiar with them, so he reminds them in verses 2 through 16. We're in the section that begins in verse 17 through the end of the chapter, verse 29, where now he's going to bring it home. God's going to apply these principles to the Jewish people, and they're guilty. And that's what he's going to endeavor to prove. Now, he does it with a very long sentence with many parts that we've already started to look at. And we'll review that and then get into the specific passage where he points the finger, you might say. And it extends into chapter 3 because he anticipates, well, they're going to protest. So he has to deal with what uh, he would have expected had he been speaking to a Jew face-to-face or to a Jewish audience. He answers those protests in chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. So that's the major section or subsection that deals with the guilt of the Jews. So verses 17 through 29, he's going to prove their guilt. 17 through 24, he's going to show that they fail in that they are inconsistent not only with what they believe, but what they proclaim, and they're inconsistent with their self-evaluation. And we saw the first part of that, in that we have the problems of inconsistency. He lays out the great privileges that did, in fact, exist. So he's not speaking in terms of things that uh, were not real. He's speaking in terms of things that were genuine, and what they themselves thought in terms of what they thought was the means by which God would justify. In other words, they are privileged, they're called, they have the covenant, they have the law, supposedly a relationship with the creator of the universe, and they were dependent on heritage, their name as Jews, the possessing of the law, and the free access that they had, but they had overlooked a small detail of trusting in the Messiah. So he's going to lay out those privileges, and we looked at them by way of analogy. We are privileged as well, not only in the country we live in, but also more specifically the uh, uh, the membership in the body of Christ. So now in the passage that we're going to look at, 21, starting in verse 21 to 22, he's going to evaluate their performance. It does not match That's why they're inconsistent. And it begins, therefore. Now, if you remember, it started with if, in verse 17, in other words, if, in fact, all of these things are true, and they are, it's a first-class condition, so you assume the premise. So if, in fact, they have Jewish heritage, they name themselves Jews, if, in fact, they possess the law, and they do, if, in fact, they boast in God, and notice he doesn't say they've trusted in him, but only boast in him, and all the other things, also in verse 20. Now he's going to say, therefore, if you assume all these things, and you proclaim all these things, this and this is your assessment, how does your life match up? In other words, 
What is the performance? And then when we get through verse 22, we look at 23 and 24, there's an end product of that inconsistency. And there's two things that he brings out in verse 23. They dishonor God with the way they live. And in fact, they have lost their main purpose for all of the privileges that they have been given. And as a result, instead of being a light to the blind, an instructor of the foolish, they in fact are a blasphemy before the Gentiles. And that's verse 24, so that's the product. But let's begin with their performance, 21 and 22. And in that, we have a series of at least four things. The fifth one I put in the product category. It's also a question. So there's actually five questions here. And the first one deals with their failure of application, which is very, very important and the thing that we will stress this morning. So we've looked at the privileges, and it begins with, therefore, there's something should follow. Something should be true, but because it's not, he condemns them. And that's their performance. So we might look at kind of the main theme of this passage is, obviously, does performance match privilege? And not only objectively, and not only as you might look and evaluate the Jews from the outside, but he is framing it in such a way by asking them these questions and laying out these true assumptions. And in fact, if all of these are true, now he's going to ask a series of five questions, almost like a parent would with a child that is guilty of breaking a lamp or a window or something. The evidence is clear, and the parents ask the child a series of questions Not because the parent doesn't know the answers, but because the parent wants to bring to the surface the reality of the guilt of the child. That's what Paul is doing in this, in this context. So does their performance match their privilege? And also does their self-assessment match that privilege? And the answer that he's going to give is absolutely not. In fact, he doesn't even have to say it. All he has to do is raise it in their thinking and in their consciousness. And he does it with five rhetorical questions. So let's take a look at the first one. Verse 21, you therefore, so it follows from what he has already laid out, the privilege. Therefore, does your performance match your privilege? And he's going to ask, you who teach another Do you not teach yourself? Now, that's kind of all-encompassing. It's kind of the broad principle that he's going to bring out. And then he's going to give three specifics. Now, you might include the, the fourth one as a specific as well. But it also kind of is a summary as well. So you have a beginning summary. And then the fifth one is somewhat of a summary as well. Or a conclusion, you might even say. It's a question, but it's a question that brings it all together. So the first question is very broad. The whole idea, this is their purpose. They were to be a light in a dark world. Remember, we looked at the Isaiah passage. They were to be a light to the Gentiles. They had failed in the Old Testament. 
What about the situation in the first century? That's what we want to look at in this passage. You who teach another, and they were known as rabbis, as teachers. The question is, not because Paul doesn't know the answer, but to bring to their awareness, do you not teach yourself? Kind of on a broad basis, he's dealing with, do you apply the scriptures that you are teaching others to follow? And the implied answer is obviously what? No, that's the implied answer. And it's framed in that way. So you who teach another, do you not teach yourself? That's why I've titled it, A Failure to Apply. They know the word, and many of them were even teachers of the word, and many of them even would have ventured out and perhaps reached out to even Gentiles, even though that was very uncommon. But they prided themselves in their knowledge of the word and their ability to communicate it. So he brings that to the surface, but they have a failure to apply it. That's real common in Bible teaching churches. I don't think it's necessarily so common amongst you. Most of you are very responsive, but in general, you have a lot of people oftentimes in Bible teaching churches, evangelical churches where the Bible at least is somewhat proclaimed, if not overtly. People know and have a lot of doctrine, a lot of background, a lot of understanding. Their theology is correct. Their knowledge is at a higher level. They're biblically literate. But it's real easy not to take those principles, take that teaching, and apply it in an everyday outside world experience. So that's the temptation that we all face, and we also always have to battle with it. And that was certainly true amongst the nation of Israel. And there's some clear examples that we have in the New Testament. In fact, we have Jesus in Matthew 23, primarily rebuking, woe to you scribes and Pharisees. He's rebuking the leadership of the nation of Israel, because they in general, failed to apply the things that they were teaching others. Would somebody care to look that up? In fact, uh, two or three of you look up Matthew 23, because there's some other passages in there that apply to the others as well. So a failure in doing. Notice Matthew 23. Who wants to look at that one? Connie, why don't you get that one? Linda, you'll get the next one. Matthew 23, 27, and 28. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outward dead men's bones and all. Even so, you also outward are righteous to men, but inside you proceed in love. A basic hypocrisy, a basic failure to truly live out. In other words, it's all superficial. It's all external. It's all for appearance. But there's no reality. In other words, they are perfect in their attendance of synagogue. They have all the boxes checked off. In other words, I've done my prayer time. I've done this. I've done that. I've done this. But there's no inward reality. And that was true of the leadership. That's who he's condemning in Matthew chapter 23. So it's a failure in doing, which was very common. And this is Jesus 
And obviously, Jesus omnisciently seeing hearts is evaluating the leaders in the first century. In fact, he is very scathing in that whole chapter, more so than any other passage in the New Testament. So let's apply this. Obviously, I think the application is pretty clear. Doing the word, being doers of the word. Remember James chapter 2. Not merely what? Hearers. That's a common theme. In fact, we already saw that in chapter 2. That was a problem in the first century. It is always a problem. And it is probably those of us that are involved in the word of God One of the biggest temptations is not to apply the things that we are learning, not to apply the things that uh, we are studying and are before our thinking. So they have a failure to apply, and that begins in verse 21. There's a second one in that same verse. It's a failure of dishonesty. You who preach, and notice the emphasis here, teaching, preaching, it's almost... Hebrew poetry, you might say. In this context, they're just questions. I don't think this is strictly speaking Hebrew poetry, but it's similar. You who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? In other words, same inconsistency. Teaching one thing, doing another. Failing to apply the very specific. Now, he's going to give three violations that were very, very common in the first century. In fact, that first one is common in all of world history. And it's common even before the nation of Israel existed amongst the people, amongst even believers. It was common in the first century in the church. That's why James speaks of doing, not merely hearing. It's common today. So also, these were common amongst Jewish people in the first century. The issue of honesty. Now, it appears in subtle ways. It's not like Jewish people were breaking into houses and that sort of thing. But in fact, perhaps not giving a full day's work for a day's wage, that's a way of stealing, you might say, stealing from the employer. You who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? And this was evident in the first century. In fact, uh, you have hints of that in Matthew 23, verse 14 and 25. Linda, if you want to read those two. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses. Wow. Wow. And for a pretense, you make long prayers. Therefore, you will receive greater punishment. Okay, notice that. Now, it wasn't necessarily that they broke into widows' houses, but in some way they were cheating them, defrauding them, perhaps putting pressure upon them to tithe, perhaps beyond their capability even. So I think he's looking at heart issues here and not necessarily strictly literal breaking into houses type things, but ways of subtly perhaps cheating even widows in that context. I want to read verse 25 as well. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish inside. They are full of robbery. Full of robbery. And what else? Self-indulgence. Self-indulgence. So they're profiting in some way, and unbiblically, obviously, that's why Jesus is condemning them, 
in cheating. Others may not be so overt, but it's in subtle ways. And this was common in the first century. That's why Jesus is rebuking the leadership here. And it would uh, trickle down to the common Jewish people as well. So it's a failure of the Eighth Commandment. And I think what he's doing here, you're violating the Ten Commandments, the very foundation and the very basis of all of the law, fundamental to God's justice. Here's the Eighth Commandment in violation. Now, we can apply that as well in our culture, and I think we are tempted to probably be subtle as well. And one way may be how generous are we with those that are in need. This is kind of the with others. It's not, in other words, sometimes this is maybe a subtle way. Evaluate, are we cheerful givers in terms of people that are in need? Or do we have to have the tax deduction first? Or do we respond in a generous way? If somebody's in need, remember the James passage we looked at last time. If we know of a need and do not fulfill it, that is sin. So this is kind of a subtle way. You don't have to break into a house to steal, biblically. In fact, it all begins with heart attitudes. So these are applications. Now, in verse 22, we have the third question dealing with immorality. And let's take a look at it. You who say that one should not commit adultery, and then the next phrase, do you commit adultery? Now, this was overt. In fact, in the first century, believe it or not, it was relatively common amongst Jewish people to violate this commandment, dealing with adultery. So we're dealing with another commandment of the ten. And a passage that brings that out is Matthew twelve thirty nine. Would somebody care to read that one? Bob, you get that one? In fact, there are some outside sources outside of the Bible that seem to at least indicate or hint that this was very common in the first century. The practice of adultery amongst Jewish people. You got twelve thirty nine. But he answered and said to them, Evil, adulterous generation, kind of a general category, classifying Jewish community, adulterous. Keep reading. Praise for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it. The sign from the lips of Jesus again, accusing them of being an adulterous generation. This is common, Connie. I guess I've always kind of read that as adulterous him. You know, they are his people, his gods, not Yes. Yeah, that is absolutely true. But remember Jesus in this context, and also in Matthew chapter 5, he takes adultery to its roots. And the roots of it would, in fact, be worshiping other gods, but it manifests itself in an in a external way as well. And the roots of it, in terms of lust, whatever comes out of the heart. So it, I think it deals with both. And historically, we do know that this was common in the first century. Don't forget John 8, where the woman was taking adultery. Yes. Don't know what Jesus wrote in the sand. Yep. We, uh, someone suggested we drew a little Valentine hearts and things like that. Uh, <laughs> Probably um, not. But Sam Scribe. 
plus Rachel Goldstein, plus, uh, Samuel Bar Elimelech, plus um, Ruth Ruth Silverstein. And, uh, yeah, yeah. The implication of the passage is that they may have been guilty of similar things that what they were about to stone the woman in John eight, right? Yeah. Okay. Those are just examples. Were there a lot of uh, Yes. So there are descendants of adulterous relationships. Right. Mm-hmm. himself was descended from an ancestral relationship. That's right. Judah and Tamar. Tamar that's, that's right. Yep. And who else is in the line of Jesus in Joshua? Rahab. Yeah. 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 This is a common problem in all times. This is why the Bible speaks to us today as well. You can find application in terms of the nature of man. The nature of man is not different. They didn't have cell phones. They didn't have fast cars, but they still had depraved hearts, right? So we have a different technological age, but in terms of the nature of man, we're pretty much the same as these Jews. So we can think of some other examples perhaps. This is a failure of the seventh commandment. So they are already violating two commandments. All right? And in terms of an application, we need to constantly guard our lives in terms of a life of purity. We live in a sex-crazed culture, and it's a difficult culture sometimes to navigate, and we're constantly tempted in these areas as well. Maybe not so overtly as committing adultery, but in terms of other areas that would be related to the lack of purity. So that's number three. Number four is a failure in idolatry. They're becoming more intense, more drastic, more severe, if you will. And that's the last part of 2.22. You, and notice it's another question, a series of questions. Here's the fourth one. You who abhor idols, and then it says, do you rob temples? Now, this is a little difficult to interpret, and there's a variety of views that are suggested. Some of them I might share with you, since we do have the time. I wasn't going to, I didn't put them on a slide. But it's not real clear because we don't have a clear passage that indicates that they were robbing whatever it's talking about. Now, it's in the plural, so some suggest uh, they robbed uh, pagan temples. That's one view. And there's a variety of views. One of them, let me read some of them to you. Just general irreverence toward the Jerusalem temple, just not giving it the proper respect. Well, I think that might be a part of what's in view here. That's a view held by some commentators. But it seems to be too obscure in light of the others that are more specific. Some of them would have thought that perhaps literal stealing from the Jerusalem temple. Remember, there was a lot of money that was brought in in tithes, and it perhaps wouldn't be unusual for someone to dip into the treasury there. There's not a lot in the New Testament that seems to indicate that this was a a major problem amongst the Jewish people. So I'm not sure that that is in view. A fourth view is actual robbery of pagan temples. 
and or a misuse of articles that were taken from these pagan temples. Now, that's possible based on that passage that we already read. We talked about robbing <laughs> temples in that Matthew chapter 23 passage, was it? That's, you read that one, right? Wasn't there, maybe this was in the Old Testament, wasn't it south side of the rooms and the things in the mountains? Robbing from right. pagan temples. It's possible. Yeah, yeah, that's possible. Well, a lot of things in the Old Testament followed <laughs> into the New Testament. Yep. Another view was that uh, Jews profited from stolen goods. In other words, there was a lot of exchange of commerce, mm-hmm. and people oftentimes were stealing and would resell, and Jews could profit from that. That's a possibility. Yes. And in, and then the money changers. In fact, we're going to look. Money, we're going to look uh, at that passage. Yeah, in uh, certain, you know, in, in our currency. So if your currency is from another country, uh, you'll pay through the nose to exchange. Yeah. In fact, we're going to look at that Matthew twenty-one passage you're alluding to. Before we look at that, <laughs> there's also a passage in Acts which indicates that it might have been a common practice in the first century to actually rob pagan temples, because in Acts chapter 19, verse 37, would somebody care to read that one? And then we'll look at, somebody else look up Matthew 21, who wants to get, Ellen, you want to do Matthew 21? Who's got Acts 19, Connie, you got that one? 37. Now this is Paul, he's being arrested. We have brought these names who are neither robbers or blasphemers. Okay. Their goddess is what? The goddess of the Artemis? Yeah, in Acts chapter 19. They're neither what? Robbers of temples. These are pagan temples in a pagan land, in a pagan culture. So this seems to be a common practice. This is actually a failure in the first century of the first and second commandments that deal with idolatry. And... This is what Jesus is hinting at in Matthew 21, 12, and 13. Jesus went into the temple complex and drove out all those buying and selling the temple. He overturned the money changers' tables and the chairs of those selling those. And he said to them, it is written, my house will be called a house of but you are making me Den of thieves. This is the Jerusalem temple. These would have been Jewish people. They were actually defaming the temple, profiting from the temple, and probably exacting exorbitant fees from those that would come long distances and had to buy an animal. They probably overcharged them. And in fact, robbing, if you will, from these people would have been a common practice during feast days. So more than likely, this is what Paul is maybe alluding to, And this would be a violation. Anything that violates the temple is violating God himself. The presence of God manifests in the temple. A violation of the first and second commandments, at least the spirit of them. Make sense? So they've violated at least four of the commandments. The eighth commandment, the seventh commandment, the first and the second commandment, which are the most important of the commandments, first and second And as a result, Paul could point a finger and say, you have failed, you are guilty before a holy God. 
you are in need of the saving work of the Messiah. So there's a failure there. We can apply the same thing in our culture in terms of God's will, making it a priority. Anything that substitutes us fully committing our hearts and our minds and our actions to the things of God, in a sense, is putting something before him. That's a definition of idolatry. Anything that replaces the one true God is idolatrous. That includes football. Ooh. Oh, dear. Ooh, wow. wow. <laughs> oh. Stepped on my toes. That <laughs> also includes, you know, whatever it is that seems so important in your life. And, exactly. And I have probably the same thought. I'm not a football fan, but there's all sorts of little things in your life that seem so much more important than Jesus. Exactly. So there's an application for us as well. Anything that replaces the one true God is idolatry and a violation of the first and second commandments. And are we tempted in those areas? Yep. We think oftentimes of what our needs are as opposed to what God may have us to do. So God's will as a priority is a good application to draw. So that brings us to the product. So they are guilty. Paul doesn't have to say that. Just by raising these questions, they would have thought of these things. They would have looked around themselves and seen, and some of them would have been involved overtly in at least one of these. Maybe dealing dishonestly with other people in subtle ways. Maybe not fully applying God's word as God intends. Perhaps even to the extent of what was going on in the temple, buying and selling uh, goods that Jesus condemns and cleanses the temple. Whatever it may have been, they would have been considered guilty. And Paul is using that. And the product of that, it's another question. It's the fifth of the rhetorical questions. But I think it takes a little bit of a turn here in that it moves into what is all this doing? This question leads to the product. At least that's how I put it to keep it with the alliteration here. So in our little chart of this long couple of sentences here, we have the product, 23 and 24. And verse 23, you who boast in the law. Notice he went all the way back to one of the first assumptions in verse 17. They they boast in God in that chapter, but they're relying on the law. Like there's two things in this context that they boast in. They boast in God, and it's more like they own God. In other words, it's their God. They also boast in the law. You boast in the law, and that's what's implied in being teachers of the law. In other words, they know it, they proclaim it, they teach it. They're guides, they're blind guides, but they're guides to the foolish, etc. You who boast in the law... Through your breaking the law, he's already condemned them. They've broken the four of the Ten Commandments. Do you dishonor God? There's the question. First of all, what is the purpose? I just mentioned they're boasting in God, verse 17. And now in verse 23, they're boasting in the law. Now, that's not a bad thing. The problem with it is what? Consistency. The inconsistency. In other words, we should. In fact, we read the Jeremiah 9 passage that 
God delights in us boasting in him that we know him. That was their failure. They didn't know him. And not only that, but their lives were inconsistent with what they proclaimed. It's a good thing to boast. In fact, if you do a word study, you'll find that there are several categories. Paul boasted. He boasted in his ministry even. Not that it was he that was doing it, but God was using him. And in fact, the use of the word half of the time is used by Paul. I think it's used like 30, 36 times. And half of them are by Paul himself. And some of them pertain to the ministry that he was involved in. It's very common. That word is very common in Second Corinthians where Paul is defending his apostleship. He uses the word to boast in that passage. So there's lots of good things to boast about in the right spirit, with the right attitude of knowing that God is the one that is ultimately producing these things. Make sense? So it's not a negative thing. It's a positive thing. The problem is the inconsistency. And this moves us to the purpose of all things is what? To glorify God. And we saw last time, specifically the purpose of the law, let's remind ourselves of Deuteronomy 4, 6 through 8. I think we have laid out the purpose of the law even before the nation of Israel exists as a nation. I gave you that background last time. And let's look at it again. So keep and do them. In other words, do the law or the stipulations of the law. For that in your wisdom and your understanding. In other words, you will gain wisdom and understanding not in just knowing it, but in what? Doing it. You'll gain wisdom and understand, and your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples. In other words, people will be able to see it. Gentiles will see how it's having an impact on your life. Who will hear all these statutes and say, this is what the Gentiles will say, if in fact you're doing this. This is their purpose. Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. Verse 7, for what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord, as Yahweh, our Elohim? The two most common words for God in the Old Testament. So near to it as is the Lord our God. Whenever we call on him, they have an active prayer life. Verse 8, or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law, which I am setting before you today? That's the purpose of the law, to give wisdom, to give understanding, such that a people can be a light to the world, to the Gentiles. That's the purpose of the law. That's the purpose of studying the Bible, that we may be, The New Testament calls us what? The light of the world. Not because we're so great, but because we can reflect what God can do in one life. That was the purpose of the nation of Israel. That was the purpose of the law. You who boast in the law through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? So they dishonor God because they have violated not only the Ten Commandments, but the spirit of the whole law and Before the Gentiles, God is dishonored. And the word, there's the Greek word, atimazo, a complete failure, 
which declares them guilty. That's the whole point. They're guilty and in need of justification. That's going to be the next topic, major topic he's going to deal with. And he's condemned them. They've failed. In the last verse, he even goes beyond verse 24, and we'll conclude with this one. They blaspheme God. This is the end product. You who boast in the law through your breaking of the law, do you dishonor God? Last question. Conclusion, verse 24. For the name of God is blasphemed. Why is it all capitalized? It's Old Testament. He's quoting from Isaiah. In fact, we'll look up the passage. For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. They've lost their whole purpose. Now he's condemning them. The word blaspheme comes, in fact, the whole phrase comes from a combination of probably Isaiah 52. Who wants to read that one? 52.5. Jeremy, you got that one? Oh, Bob, you got it? Yeah. Okay, Bob, why don't you get that one? Jeremy, why don't you get the Ezekiel one? Isaiah 52, and notice... Paul is probably paraphrasing maybe a combination of both or maybe one or the other. Isaiah 52, 5. Do you want to read it? Now, therefore, what do I have here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people have been taken away without cause? Now, this is captivity. They're going to be taken into captivity. The northern kingdom was taken by the Assyrians. The southern kingdom, years later, would be taken by the Babylonians. Keep reading. Again, the Lord declares, those who rule over them howl, and my name is continually blasphemed all day long. His name is blasphemed because the Jewish people of that period of time were idolatrous. Okay? So he quotes or paraphrases, you might even say, Isaiah 52.5, Ezekiel 36.20, Jeremy? When they came to the nations where they went, they profaned my holy name, because it was said of them, These are the people of the Lord, yet they have come out of his land. And the reason they come out of his land is because they've been idolatrous, and it was a judgment. Ezekiel is writing at the time of the Babylonian captivity. You want to read verse 22? Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. So God is acting in judgment for his own name. He's going to show that he's a righteous and a just God in judgment. And the reason for it is they blasphemed his name. They would have been reminded of these two passages, or should have been, and would have been declared guilty. The end here, just as it is written, clearly quoting or at least paraphrasing the passages we just read. So, closing thought that we can come to is we should have the talk, we should talk the talk, but what else? We need to walk the walk. Well, he says, reading on, Ezekiel 36, I will put my spirit with and cause you to walk. That's in the future. And you will be terrified. Yeah, that's in the far future. When we get the Holy Spirit, it's not like we invent this. No, no. Nope. It's the working of the Spirit within us 
But that's a promise to Israel when they will experience the new covenant. Yeah, very good. Who wants to close for us? Craig? Father, just uh, thank you for this, uh, for this day. You, you, this day that you set aside for us to get together and worship you. Thank you for this church. We ask for a special uh, services today that your presence will be there. Join together today for a class to learn more about you. Pray that you will uh, just be with this class, that we would do your will that you've set us out to do. And just pray your continued blessings to you. Just ask this in your name.